The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 18. Many uh, years ago, I remember meeting with a young man, and I, I had been going through premarital counseling with he and his fiancée, and he scheduled a meeting outside of that time because he was concerned with some conviction that he was feeling. And he began to talk to me about some of his past relationships and some mistakes he had made in those relationships. And he began to just, to just pour out how he felt so much guilt and, and so much shame. And he was meeting with me because he believed that he needed to confess these things to his fiancée before they married, but he was afraid. And I'll never forget him looking me straight in my eyes and just saying, how could she ever forgive me? How could she ever love me? He sat across from me feeling trapped in a place of guilt and and shame, seeing no possibility of, of redemption. He was trapped in a place of disgrace. Have you ever been there? Like, like a place of, of disgrace, a moment in time, a place in your life of, of which you're ashamed, things that that you hide or you keep secret, because if anyone knew, they couldn't possibly love you or forgive you. These are things that make, even those of us that call ourselves Christians, these are things that rob us of joy because they make us do things like even doubt our salvation. Because we know that God knows. And these places of disgrace, they make us doubt, how could God ever love me? How could God ever forgive me? I have, these own, I have these places in my, my own life because I know no matter, what, no matter what sin I think about, no matter what mistake, no matter what place of disgrace, I know that my sin is ultimately against God. Perhaps it's even sin that I've explicitly aimed at Him. And it makes me feel trapped. Perhaps you feel trapped in guilt and shame without any possibility of redemption. Trapped in a place of disgrace. We've all been there. Some of us live there. Like Even if nobody around us knows it or not, some of you feel trapped and you live there even, even now. And so this morning in John 18, I believe that our author John, he's going to lead us to such a place, to a place of disgrace, the place of Peter's denials of Christ. I was reading Bruce Milne's commentary on this section of Scripture, and he says that besides the crucifixion itself, this is one of the saddest, darkest sections in the whole of Scripture. A place of ultimate disgrace. Yet, he goes on to say that even here, stars shine in the night sky. In other words, even, even here, the light of Christ shines in the darkness of Peter's denials. And John wants us to see it. 
John is taking us to this place of disgrace for a purpose, to show us something about the person of Christ and what that means for our life. So the question is, what is that? What does John want us to see from the place of disgrace? What does he want us to see about Jesus? John answers this question by taking us on a journey. Yes, ultimately to Peter's place of disgrace, but he's going to pause at several places along the way. And every place that he pauses plays a part in what he wants us to see about Jesus. So, let's take a a journey through this text. Let's, Let's journey along with John to see what he wants us to see, to discover what he wants us to see from the place of disgrace. So, here we go. First, John takes us to a place of priests with power. I promise they are not all peas this morning. It's a habit. I can't kick it. John takes us to a place of priests with power. Look at John 18, verses 13 and 14. It says, First, they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So, Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you were here with us last week, you heard all about that. He's been arrested, and they've taken him to the house of Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, you'd think that they would take Jesus straight to Caiaphas, after all. He's the high priest. He's the one who has to make an official decision. He's the one that's got to secure a conviction so they can take this case to the people who are really in charge, the Romans, and hopefully get a death penalty. But they don't go straight to Caiaphas. They go to his father-in-law, Annas. Why? Annas and Caiaphas's houses were, were likely connected by the same courtyard. It's not like Annas's house is closer. They don't go there because it's a more convenient place. No, they go there because Annas is a man of considerable power. Annas himself had served as the high priest several years earlier. And according to Jewish law, a high priest was appointed for life. The Romans were the one who liked to mix it up, show that they're still in power make the high priest rotate in and out. And so since Annas has served as high priest, so have five of his sons, and now his son-in-law. It's not hard to see the nepotism and see who's really in power here. And Annas just keeps throwing a son forward, and when he runs out of them, it's a son-in-law because he's really the one in power. And likely the Jews saw him as still the legitimate high priest. They viewed a high priestly appointment as for life. And so they take Jesus to Annas, the power behind the priesthood, the patriarch of this priestly family. And Caiaphas himself, I'm not trying to say that Caiaphas was a pawn. He was no mere pawn. He's powerful in his own right. John reminds us in verse 14 of something that Caiaphas said all the way back in John chapter 11. He recalls, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He's pointing you back to John chapter 11, verses 49 and 50. And if you go back and you reread that passage, this is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The religious leaders are freaking out. We've got to do something, so let's kill the guy who raises people from the dead. And so Caiaphas puts forward this 
idea, this notion, he was a man with enough power that he could convince others, we need to kill a public figure. And they would agree with him. Annas and Caiaphas are both going to use their power. They're going to abuse their power to make sure that this plot to kill Christ succeeds. Annas, Caiaphas. John wants us to see that Jesus is being taken to a place of priests with power. Second, John takes us to a place of denial in the dark. I told you they weren't all peace. Takes us to a place of denial. I didn't say I'd quit alliterating. I just said they weren't peace. John takes us to a place of denial in the dark. Verses 15 to 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That's likely John. John never names himself uh, throughout this gospel. So we've got Peter, John following Jesus. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. It's a cold spring night. It's in the wee hours of the morning right now, most likely. Peter and John arrive at this gated courtyard of the high priest's house. Apparently, John's got connections to get in. He's known. He's even known as a disciple of Jesus. Because when Peter comes in through the door, when he gets Peter in, the question from the servant girl is, you also, like I know John, I know he's a disciple of Jesus, but you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? It's a question of disbelief. Like, she can't believe that John, let alone any other disciple of an accused criminal, would want to be in this place on this night. They're trying to put that man to death. What are you doing here? They'd have to be crazy. And apparently Peter agrees with her. Jesus' disciples would have to be crazy to come here. It's a good thing I'm not one, Peter basically says. A disciple? I deny it. And the night grows a little darker, a little colder, as Peter rubs shoulders with those who have arrested his Savior. Like moments ago, he was swinging a sword at these people. Now he's standing with them around the charcoal fire, trying to keep his hands warm when it's really his heart that's growing cold. John wants us to see that Peter is in a place of denial in the dark. He's lost, doesn't know his way. It's at a place of denial in the dark. Third, John takes us to a place of unrighteous, unfaithful men. He takes us to a place of unrighteous, unfaithful men. Look at verses 19 to 21. The high priest, meaning Annas, obviously they still viewed him as the high priest, 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. It doesn't mean that he never gave private instruction to his disciples. He means his message has been consistent no matter where he's been. It's not like he's had one message for public consumption and another message that was a private conspiracy. It's the same. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Annas and all involved in the trial of Jesus, they are participating in so much illegal activity here, it's not even close to funny. Like, there's no due process here. There is no, no justice here. The Innocence Project would have a heyday with this case. I've been watching way too much true crime TV right now. Okay. Netflix, it's full of these great docu... Okay, moving on. no due process here. Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night, and he's immediately being tried. Nighttime trials were illegal for the Jewish people. Annas isn't even legally the one who should be interrogating Jesus, should be the current high priest Caiaphas. But if you want to get even more technical, Jesus shouldn't be being interrogated at all. That's not the way the Jewish legal system worked. Again, Bruce Milne helps us out. He says, the essence of the Jewish legal process was the sworn testimony of witnesses. On their testimony, everything depended. If you're familiar with Old Testament law, you know this. You've got to have two witnesses to convict somebody. On their testimony, everything depended. If two witnesses agreed in the essentials, then the accused was doomed, no matter what he might say in his defense. Strict legal process, therefore called for the interrogation of the witnesses rather than of the accused. This is what Jesus asks for. Why are you asking me? This isn't the way this works. This isn't right according to the law. You're not being faithful to the word you claim to stand for. Why are you asking me? He's asking for due process. He tells them to call witnesses. Follow the legal process. He says there's way more than potentially two. There are thousands of witnesses to what he has taught. Because he's taught publicly. He's taught in the synagogues. He's taught in the temple. He's spoken openly to the world. Jesus is like, you need a witness? Take your pick. But they're not interested with justice, righteousness, faithfulness. Verses 22 to 24 make that abundantly clear. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The officer's action is out of line no matter if what Jesus said is right or wrong. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Like either way, there is a due process procedure. If I'm saying something wrong, rebut it with a witness. 
That's what you're supposed to do. And if what I said is right, what are you doing? This officer isn't interested in due process or what's right or what's true because the authorities that are above him are not interested in that. Their only goal is to force Jesus to say something that they can use to get a conviction from the Romans, to condemn him to death. And when Annas can't get it, he sends him to Caiaphas to try. Both, both of these men are going after one thing, and they will use any means, even physical violence, to get what they want. John wants us to see that we are in a place of unrighteous, unfaithful men. Fourth, John takes us to a place of ultimate disgrace. He takes us to a place of ultimate Disgrace. This is where we've been heading. Like we may have paused along the way, places of priests with power, place of a denial in the dark, place of unrighteous, unfaithful men, but now we have arrived in verse 25. Look at it with me. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. All the other gospels say that he denied it this third time with curses. And at once, a rooster crowed. Peter's still standing by that fire. Perhaps some fresh charcoal has been recently added so that the flames flare up a little higher because it seems like the people standing around that fire are beginning to recognize Peter. They're beginning to think, we've seen this guy before. They say, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? I'm not. A second denial right in the midst of Christ on trial. Like inside the priest's houses, Jesus has denied nothing, while outside in the courtyard, Peter is denying everything. The faithfulness of Christ is being set right next to the unfaithfulness of Peter. John's doing this on purpose. Telling us the story this way on purpose, and it just keeps escalating. Because one of the servants is almost sure that they recognize Peter from the garden. Like, not only was this servant in the garden of Gethsemane, but they're a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter hacked off. Like, if someone hacks off your cousin's ear in front of you, you're probably going to attempt to remember their face, just in case you ever get a chance at one of their ears. And so he asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter silences him with a third and final denial, calling down curses. And so with curses, the questions are finally over. Finally, silence. Until 
One sound pierces the night and even more so pierces Peter's heart. A rooster crows. John 13 and verse 38, Jesus said to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. John has taken us to the place of ultimate disgrace. Have you been here? Have you felt what Peter is feeling? Like you're in a place, you've thought, you've said, you've done something, and, and there's no way that Jesus could ever forgive you, ever possibly love you. By some sin, you've, you've denied him. Perhaps, perhaps it's because the people around you looked powerful, or your world grew too dark and you lost your way, or you threw your lot in with unrighteous and unfaithful people, and you have found yourself in a place of ultimate disgrace, trapped by guilt and shame, and you can't possibly see any redemption that this is why john has led us to peter's place of ultimate disgrace he wants us to see not a possibility of redemption but the person who is the redeemer john has brought us to the place of ultimate disgrace to see it turned into a place of unfathomable grace. Jesus redeems, reverses everything. Everything we've seen, Jesus reverses it all. John has actually been showing that to us all throughout this passage. John has been showing us the reality that Jesus redeems all of this. He reverses all of this. We just haven't been pointing it out. We've only been looking at one side of the picture that John has been painting. Let's walk back through this passage. Let's do it in reverse to see how Jesus reverses, redeems everything we've seen. So first, in the place of ultimate disgrace, the Redeemer shows us a place of unfathomable grace. He shows us a place of unfathomable grace. Where do we see unfathomable grace in verses 25 through 27? We don't see it as much as we hear it. In verse 27, we hear the sound of grace. And grace sounds like a rooster. You can quote me on that. It sounds like a rooster crowing. Most of us, I think when we read through this passage, most of us think of, of this crowing as merely making Peter feel convicted. It's the sound of guilt, not of grace. But shades, it is a mistake to think that those things can never be related. Okay? Guilt, conviction, and grace, it's a mistake to never think that those things can be Related. So many people think that where grace abounds, we should never feel guilt. We should never experience conviction. But there is a kind of convicting guilt that is itself a gift of God's grace. Do you get that? There is a kind of of convicting guilt that is itself a gift of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly grief or godly conviction or godly guilt 
Godly grief, sorrow over sin. That's what, that's what guilt is. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, guilt, produces death. Yes, there is a kind of worldly guilt that only produces regret and leads to death. Leaves you sitting trapped in guilt and shame. But there is a godly guilt that produces repentance that leads to life. This is a gift of God's grace. It is a kindness of God, says Romans chapter 2. It's God's kind conviction of our sin that's meant to lead us back to Him. I'm, I'm not denying anything you know to be true about grace. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen, that's true. Later on in the chapter, there is, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord, yes and amen. No sin can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are united to Him. Sin cannot cut your union with Christ. But it can disturb your communion with Christ. Your union with Christ it cannot be cut. It can't be severed. Your communion, your daily communing with Him it can be disturbed by our sin. This is true in my relationship with my own children. There's nothing they can do to cut their relationship with me as my sons and daughters. There is plenty they can do to disturb our communion. And I pray for conviction, I really do. For repentance that leads to restoration. For repentance that leads to life. I pray for godly guilt. It is God's kind conviction of our sin that's meant to lead us back to Him. Jesus foretold, if we get back to Peter and the rooster here, Jesus foretold the rooster crowing so that its sound would bring back to Peter's mind all that Jesus had said to him. He wants Peter to remember in that moment everything that he said to him. And yes, part of that is that Jesus did tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But that's not all. That's not all Jesus said to Peter in John 13. John 13 and verse 36, Jesus said to Peter, where I am going to the cross, you cannot follow me now. In other words, you're going to deny me. He's about to say that explicitly. Where I'm going, you can't follow. In fact, you're going to deny me. But you will follow afterward. There's an afterward, Peter. Our communion may, not be, uh, may be disturbed, but our union will not be cut. There's an afterward. When you hear that rooster crow, you can know, yes, you failed, but I haven't. I've been faithful. Is that not what John has been setting next to Peter's failure? He's been setting next to it the faithfulness of Christ. You may have failed, but I haven't. I've been faithful, and I will be faithful to bring you back to myself. The very place of Peter's ultimate disgrace is redeemed by Christ to be a place of unfathomable grace. And this is true for you. Perhaps Christ is using this sermon 
like a rooster crow in your life. Like this morning, as we've talked about places of ultimate, of ultimate disgrace, perhaps it's stirred up. Memories, guilt, shame, conviction. See that as God's kindness towards you, and His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, and repentance always ends in rejoicing. For through repentance we are restored. The rooster's crow is a call to repentance. It's the sound of grace. The sermon is meant to be calling you back to Christ. No matter how you failed, He's been faithful. He's being faithful in this very moment to redeem your place of ultimate disgrace into a place of unfathomable grace. John has shown us this very thing. That even at the exact moments of our greatest failure, Christ is remaining faithful. He's shown us that Christ remains righteously faithful at the very moment of our worst failures. This is the second thing we need to see. In the place of unrighteous, unfaithful men stands the only righteously faithful man. In the place of unrighteous, unfaithful men stands the only righteously faithful man. Look at verse 19 again. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Like right before this, Peter had just been questioned about Christ and he denied him. Now Christ is being questioned about Peter, about his disciples, and he remains devoted. Peter, who is being unrighteous and unfaithful, has the only righteous man. The high priest, remember, they can't find anything wrong with him. They can't find any witness who can bring anything wrong against him. Peter has the only righteous man being faithful to him in the very moment of his unrighteous unfaithfulness. In fact, Jesus is going to remain faithful all the way to his death. Peter denies Jesus dies. He remains faithful at the moment of Peter's failure, and he remains faithful, shades, at the moment of your failure and mine. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Are you getting these adjectives? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. In other words, even if you've got a really good righteous person, somebody laying their life down for that, that's pretty rare. It's a pretty rare thing. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe it does happen. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not when we were righteous, not when we were good, when we were unrighteous and unfaithful, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were trapped, 
under guilt and shame in a place of ultimate disgrace. Christ, the only righteous, faithful man, God incarnate, he himself went to the place, the place of ultimate disgrace, the cross. He went there in our place and he took on all our sin with all its guilt, with all its shame. He died the death that we deserved in our place. The only righteous, faithful man died in the place of unrighteous, unfaithful mankind so that the very place of ultimate disgrace might become the only place of unfathomable grace. This is the good news of the gospel. What's your place of ultimate disgrace? That is where Christ, that's the very place Christ meets you with His grace. Whatever it is you can drum up, whatever it is you can think of, that you think would place the barrier. That's the very barrier that his blood broke down. What is your place of ultimate disgrace? That's the very place where Christ meets you with his grace. I think that is the reality about our Redeemer that John wants us to see. I think that because, third, the very place of denial in the dark is redeemed as a place of life in the light. The very place of denial in the dark is redeemed as a place of life in the light. See it with me. John, when he's been telling us about Peter's denials, he's emphasized a particular place. Do you remember where, that is, where has Peter been standing all evening? Non-rhetorical. A around a fire. Even more specifically, a charcoal fire. John told us that in verse 18. He said other people are warming themselves. Peter's warming himself. Verse 25, Peter's still warming himself. Like he's emphasized this place. And he even gave us that particular detail, a charcoal fire. Why? Like, Maybe it's because John's there and he's an eyewitness and this is just a detail that he remembers. But John's a careful writer and I think that there's more going on than that. John wants us to know that the primary place of Peter's denials was around a charcoal fire. Why? Flip over to John chapter 21. We'll get there in a few weeks. We're going to cheat right now. Turn over to John 21. This is after Jesus' death. It's after his resurrection. The disciples have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Peter's seen him risen from the dead. But as far as we know, Peter has not yet had a conversation with Christ. And in John 21, Peter and some of the other disciples, they're, they're out fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shoreline. Peter, impetuous as always, plunges into the sea, swims to shore. The other guys are like, we're not doing that. And they just you know, make their way back in the boat. And when they get there, this is what we read. John 21, look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And if you keep reading, it's around a charcoal fire that Christ asks Peter, 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times around a charcoal fire. And then Jesus declares to Peter that he will empower him to follow after him all the days of his life until his death. The very place where Peter had denied Christ in the dark, it becomes the place where Christ promises to empower Peter's life in the light. Shades, this is what your Redeemer does. The only righteously faithful God-man takes your place of ultimate disgrace, whatever it is. He takes that and he redeems it into a place of unfathomable grace. Where is your charcoal fire? Like in your life, is it, is it in a past relationship? Is it, is it in a failed marriage? Parenting mistakes, regrets. Where, where is your charcoal fire? Is it, is it in the things you've seen on a computer screen? Is it in thoughts that you've entertained, words that you've said, addictions that you've fought, curses that you've cried? Where's your charcoal fire where it feels like you've denied Christ? Shades. Christ brings his cross to your charcoal fire to make the very place of ultimate disgrace the place of his unfathomable grace. That's why it's grace. No place is too dark or too far removed. No sin is too deep. No heart is too hard. Even if you're the chief of sinners, he comes to where you are and calls, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Hear him calling now through this word. Hear the rooster crowing in your life. It is the sound of grace that Christ has come to the very place you find yourself in right now to rescue you from any guilt and from any shame, to redeem you no matter how much you have denied that that was possible. He has the power to do that. Don't doubt it. He's got the power to do that because he has the power to do all things. John has wanted to make sure that we have known that since the very beginning of this passage. Right at the very beginning, he's been trying to say, Christ has the power to redeem all to everything you're about to see him flip. He's got the power to do it all. We see this in our fourth and final place. When John showed us right at the very beginning the place of priests with power, he was really showing us the place of the all-powerful priest. See, see the place of the all-powerful priest. Look at verses 13 and 14 one more time. First, they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Yeah, 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 these guys look like they're in power, don't they? Boom, let me drop verse 14 on you. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This may look like a place where Annas and Caiaphas have all the power, but John 
purposely reminds us of Caiaphas' words from back in chapter 11. He does that because he's hoping we will remember what he told us. When, when Caiaphas made this statement back in John chapter 11, John commented about it. This is what he said, John eleven fifty one. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John says, Caiaphas may think he's using his power to put Jesus to death, but the sovereign God over all is the one who is in power here. Jesus, God in the flesh, is serving as the all-powerful high priest who will die in the place of people from every nation on the planet. From the very beginning of this passage, John wants us to know it may look like a place of priest with power, but the one truly at work is our all-powerful high priest. And he, he is able to take a place of denial in the dark and redeem it to be a place of life in the light. He can do that for amongst the place of unrighteous, unfaithful men. He stands as the only righteously faithful man. And as such, he will go to the cross, the place of ultimate disgrace, and turn it into a place of unfathomable grace. Where are the places of of disgrace in your life, Jades. Hear the good news spoken there, the good news of the gospel. You have a Redeemer who reverses places of disgrace to be the very places of His grace. It's good news of the gospel. Many years ago, I remember sitting with that young man as he was asking me with tears in his eyes, how can my fiance ever forgive me? How can she ever love me? And I remember their wedding day. I remember as she walked down the aisle toward her groom, tears of joy streaming down both of their faces, for he had confessed and she had forgiven and gospel love was on display as his place of ultimate disgrace became a place of unfathomable grace. It's just, it's just a picture. It's just a picture of a deeper, wider, greater reality that is the gospel that's true for you. Oh. Shades, trust in Christ no matter if you never have in your life or if you're a Christian and you've got union with Christ but you find yourself in a place where your communion is disturbed and you feel isolated like maybe God can't forgive me, maybe I have been cut off from Christ. That's not true. Hear the good news of the gospel. Trust in Christ that he may daily make your life a place of his grace. Amen.